0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Swami Ananta. This is my Swami Maria. It's a great joy to have you all with us today. We have guests from the Expanding Light. We have living Discipleship Group. We have guests from the Meditation Retreat. We have Karma Yogis. We have Seva Yogis. Thank you all for coming. And those online all over the world. Today's topic is In Surrender Lies Victory. And this is from uh, Rays of the One Light by Swami Kriyananda. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. A case might be made for surrender as a path to victory in worldly conflicts. The way of passive resistance, for example, in preference to armed resistance. But our point here concerns a higher kind of surrender, the surrender of our deluded, egoic will to the wise and almighty will of God. Human will is, as Paramahansa Yogananda used to say, guided by whims and limited understanding. The divine will is in harmony with every level of reality. Though the divine will sometimes appears to us at first to be wrong, it proves always, eventually, to be for our highest good. Human will is inconsistent. It leads us one day to success, another to disaster. The divine will, when we surrender to it completely, though it is not always easy to do so, always brings us deep inner peace and joy in the end. Jesus Christ demonstrated this perfect surrender to God's will in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was captured and imprisoned, preparatory to his crucifixion. He went apart from the others to pray and asked them to pray also, But when he returned to them, he found them asleep. Out of his love for them, he excused them, saying, The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He then urged them again, saying, Watch and pray. Their weakness in those circumstances was particularly sad, and the disciples themselves must have regretted it bitterly later on. We all know the symptoms of human weakness, though we may excuse them in ourselves, saying, well, after all, I'm only human. But what are the signs of true strength? We find in all cases that these are the fruit of a life wholly surrendered to God. The Bhagavad Gita lists these signs in the 13th chapter. Humbleness truthfulness and harmlessness, patience and honor, reverence for the wise, purity, constancy, control of self, contempt for sense delights, self-sacrifice, perception of the certainty of ill in birth, old age, and frail mortality, disease, the ego's suffering and sin, detachment, lightly holding thoughts of home, children, and wife, those ties which bind most men, an ever-tranquil heart, heedless of good or adverse fortune, with the will upraised to worship me alone unceasingly, loving deep solitude and shunning noise of foolish crowds, calm focus on the self perceived within and in infinity, these qualities reveal true wisdom, Prince, and all that is otherwise is ignorance. Thus, through the Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind.
1: those whispers from eternity and he presents this as a vow it's called I vow never again to turn my gaze from thee so if you feel to, you can follow along with me mentally in that or perhaps just take note and come back to it and uh, see if and when it fits. I take this sacred vow. Never will I lower my love's gaze below the eyebrow horizon of my constant thoughts of Thee. Never will I turn my uplifted inner sight away from Thee. Never will I let my mind dwell on anything that reminds me not of thee I will disdain the nightmare of ignorant behavior I will court all dreams of noble achievement those of love kindness and understanding for they are thy dreams though I dream many dreams wakefully I will ever think of thee in the sacred fire of constant remembrance kept ever alight on my soul's altar I will ever behold thy presence with the watchful eyes of devotional love Thy grace has shown me that the duality of health and sickness life and death Joy and sorrow are but passing fantasies. I am finished with those eternally self-canceling delusions. I am persuaded at last that there is but one abiding reality, thy eternal, ever-conscious, ever-new, ever-thrilling, infinite, bliss so our topic this morning is in surrender lies victory and I thought to begin with just a little slice a very small little slice from the Mahabharata the great uh, epic of India And in particular, to just uh, address very briefly the uh, life of Bhishma, who would become known as Bhishma in his uh, years as a young man. This is all spiritual allegory, but this is the story on the surface that draws us in. And it's much more elaborate, I'm going to skip great parts. But uh, Bhishma, as a young man, uh, is Devavrata, and he is born to Santanu, a great king, and Ganga, who normally lives in the heavens but is now residing for a brief period of time on Earth. And so Devaratra is born to these two. And Ganga takes him to the astral heavenly realms, to raise him in the art and mastery of leading a kingdom of being a king of holding responsibility of doing battle all these things and at about the age of 16 or so Ganga comes back and brings Devaratra to his father for additional training and <clears throat> the presence there in the kingdom and she leaves for reasons I won't go into Devaratra uh, to make a long story short is uh, more or less the firstborn I won't explain why I say that but for this story let's just say he's the firstborn he's entitled to be heir to the kingdom this is a big a very big and Ganga leaves and David father is very lonely very sad lost without her and he resumes his favorite pastime which is hunting and one day as he is roaming about he meets a lovely young woman of course <laughs> falls in love and asks her father for her hand in marriage. He's quite willing to do this, but there is one condition. There always seems to be a condition. Always some red tape. And that condition is that their children will be heir to the throne and not Devarata. So this doesn't go over well at all. And Devavrata's father says, Absolutely not. I can't do this. My son is destined to be the king. And so he departs, but he is again so sad, so lonely, so heartbroken. Life has been tough on him. His son, Devavratra, hears of this and Feels bad for his father. His father has sacrificed for him in this way, but Devavrata can't live with this. And so he goes to the father of this young baby and he says, I will renounce the throne. And not only will I renounce the throne, but I will have no children of my own. And the father of this would be sec- uh, stepmother uh, accepts that, and she goes off and <clears throat> reunites with Deva Vratra's father, and they are to be married. Well, Santanu hears of this. Deva Vratra's father hears of this, and he is he's overjoyed to have this woman now as his wife, but he is disturbed on a certain level that this has come to pass and that his heir, his son, will not be king. And so to reconcile this, he uh, decides to grant a boon, and he uses all of his spiritual power, his tapas, to bring about this boon. This boon uses up all his Brahmi point, so to speak. <laughs> and that boon is that Devavratra, who is now Bhishma, when he takes this vow, the heavens open up and flowers rain from heaven, and the heavens cry out, Bhishma, Bishma, Bhishma. And so this is now his name. Bhishma means the eagle. And so Bhishma's father grants him this boon, and it's that he, death will not come to him until that point at which he chooses death. So he cannot die, nothing will touch him until he decides for himself to relinquish the physical form. Not so uh, Bhishma, as I said means the ego and the reason why I wanted to tell this is because we cannot transcend the ego we cannot get rid of the ego until we are ready to relinquish it and this is very important to understand Swami Kriyananda he's picked this up he's picked up surrender by the highest string now it's not of the material plane, it's not of matter, it's of our consciousness, it's of our ego and our soul. And when we are ready to surrender the ego is when God can truly come in and take charge of our lives. This is a huge thing, and this is a quantum leap that spiritually we will ultimately have to make. It's not a little baby step, although we get there a little bit at a time. But it's a huge spiritual leap to get to that place where, as it says in this reading of this vow, no longer, no longer will I be distracted or retained by interest. Some aspect of delusion. I am done. I am done with it. And this is going to take all of our willpower. This is going to take the fullness of our hearts, all of our devotion in cooperation with the divine to bring this about, to journey to this divine end. There is a story that Yogananda tells an autobiography of a yogi in the life of Babaji. And there is this would-be disciple who, through miraculous circumstance, arrives at the place where Babaji resides in satsang with a band of disciples in the remote heights of the Himalaya. And this man climbs through the mountains, climbs up these crags comes over the ledge and appears there before them. And he says, I have traveled months, maybe it was years, I've traveled a long time searching these realms for you, my beloved. I want to be your disciple. Babaji, the great master, sits there. He says, nothing, nothing. And the would-be disciple says, if you don't accept me, I will jump off this cliff into this chasm below. And Babaji, sitting there totally unemotionally, says, then jump, then jump. And the disciple hurls himself off the cliff and lands in a broken heap at the bottom of the chasm. And Babaji at that point instructs the disciples, go down there and bring his body back up here. And when he comes, they bring him back up, they lay him before the guru, and Babaji touches him, and he comes back to life. And he says, I accept you. Yom. His karma was now complete he was purified in such a way whatever it was we do not know but that act made him ready now this is a pretty fantastic account it's not meant I don't think Yogananda put it there so that we all throw a tantrum and jump off the cliff and get our way or to think we might be able to get our way It is an example (laughs) it is an example that in spirit we want to emulate we want to follow we want to get to that point within ourselves where I am done with this I am NOT going to get involved any longer I just can't seem to keep this on me I am not going to be involved any longer in delusion. In the Bhagavad Gita, which is a part of the Mahabharata, I gave you a little excerpt earlier, but at the point at which they're on the battlefield, and for those of you who haven't read it, it's the ultimate battle of light and darkness. And there the warriors are gathered, those of light, those of materialism material consciousness. It's its a battle that goes on within our own being. It's again a spiritual allegory. And on that battlefield, right before the war starts, these forces are lined up. And Dhritarashtra is the blind king. His son is Duryodhana, symbols of material desire, Yogananda describes it, keen material desire, because desire takes hold and it becomes the ruler. And Dhritarashtra is blind, he cannot see, and so Sanjaya, who represents introspection, is there to tell him what is going on, what is happening, why. And Sanjaya relates to Dhritarashtra to the blind king he says you know Dhritarashtra has asked him what is happening Sanjaya says the forces that are on our side that are joining us in this battle are too numerous to count but their forces those of the pond of us who represent the light and all virtuous qualities theirs are only a few this is how it looks like what it looks like when we are entrenched in the ego everything sides up with the ego we can think of a thousand justifications for why we are doing what we are doing at any moment in time and those qualities those Glorious qualities of light within us. They seem remote. They seem in the background. They don't seem to have the strength to bust through the delusion, the maya. But the masters have incarnated to show us how to do that. You know, if we didn't have them in a physical body, what would we think? We would think, this isn't possible. I can't do this no one i know is doing this therefore i can't do this and this is why the masters come in our festival of light that we celebrate every sunday it says they come willingly willingly to embrace limitation pain and death for the salvation of mankind willingly they take incarnation on the material plane living in material circumstances, (laughs) seemingly to us who don't know better, a life in matter, a material life, relatively speaking. I mean, they do things like we do. They do other things we don't do yet, but they're enough in that human incarnation for us to say, wow, maybe this is possible. Maybe I can do this because in fact they say we can do this and and earlier in the festival in the story of the the rebel bird who who abandons its divine home it says surrender to me surrender to me and And your (laughs) strength will be renewed and the bird does that and realizes the Knight's Council is true, realizes that. When we surrender that inwardly, the victory is ours, and we know that victory It is our experience. I remember a few years after I came to live at Ananda Village, and we were having a month-long biodynamic gardening program. We did this every summer, and people came and attended this. And there was this woman who, unbeknownst to us because it wasn't in her application, but every so often, and not real often, I mean it was rare, but she would have an, a seizure, like an epileptic seizure. And watching her go through this one day, I mean, it was just terrifying. I, you know you didn't know what was going to happen and One day, I was working in the orchard alongside the road, and Swami Kriyananda drove by. There were some others in the car. They were on their way to town. And I kind of flagged them down and said hi to everybody. And I I explained to Swamiji about this woman. And I said, can you help her? Can you help her? And he just said, There's nothing I can do well in my understanding of Swami Swamiji at that time and unto this day I feel I felt that Swami could have healed her I wouldn't have asked I knew he could I knew God through him could and I felt to ask on behalf of this friend so when he said no, I, I was very confused. I didn't know what to do with that. It disturbed me. I wasn't angry, but I was, I was sad. I was confused, and I was, why, why Divine Mother? Why can't Swamiji do this? It's not for me, it's for her. And I had to be with this for some time. And when I thought about it I thought Swamiji's whole life a few years with Yogananda in the body many years decades with Yogananda not in the body but Swamiji's whole life was in proximity in satsang with his guru and he never did anything unless he felt master guiding him to do that that was his training. That's who Yogananda was. Yogananda said, I never do anything without the divine sanction of the Divine Mother. And so why should we be surprised that that was Swamiji's life, that that was Swamiji's consciousness? He didn't feel Master guiding him to do that, and so he said, I cannot help her. And once I understood that, you know, it was resolved within me. And I felt so grateful, you know, for that teaching through Swamiji, through Master. And I knew that Divine Mother, in her way and her time, would take care of this woman how she saw fit. So this surrender, it's our self offering. And it's our attunement to the divine will that's how we do it that's how we get into that consciousness of being able in action and in daily life to let go near the end of Swami Kriyananda's life he felt the time had come to write Yogananda's commentary on the Gita This had been done many years before by the organization that Yogananda founded Self-Realization Fellowship but Swami Kriyananda remembered it a different way and Yogananda had asked him to write that in those days he had asked Swami Kriyananda to be present with him looking it over editing it but he was a young man then it wasn't the time Kriyananda was gifted with an incredible ability to concentrate and hold energy. And he said later in his life when he tackled this work, it wasn't though he could remember word for word what Yogananda said, but he could recall clearly, purely, the vibration, the consciousness, the spirit. And he had a lot of trepidation about writing this because So much time had passed. Could he really do it? Could he really be true to Yogananda's word? He didn't have access to the original script. And now decades had passed, and it was clear. He was never going to have access, again, to the original script. But he thought, well, I will just start. I will try. And then he had a dream. And in that dream, Yogananda said to him, don't overlook the possibility of a skylight. And what is a skylight? It's that window on the ceiling in an otherwise dark room that lets in the light. And so he started to write, and it just flowed. It miraculously flowed with such accuracy, with such trueness to the original vibration the original intent and he completed that work in a few months time very short amount of time but again attuning tuning to the divine will we can't accelerate our path our growth really I mean we can do a lot of things to put that in place but ultimately identification with the ego is going to create some distance there and we can't force that distance to be less but what we can do in each moment to the best of our ability is to try to surrender to try to let go to try to relinquish the ego and in this reading this morning Jesus' words, he describes the scene in Gethsemane. And he's telling the disciples, watch and pray, watch and pray, watch and pray. And they fall asleep. And you have to wonder, because watch and pray, what does that mean? It means if we're watching, we're observing. We're not involved. You know, that's our practice of the technique of we Saw. We become an observer of life. We become a, an observer of our own life, of our own karma, of our own shortfall, of our own gains. We're observing, we're distant, we're not involved emotionally, psychically. And so Jesus is saying, watch and pray. And what if the disciples had been in that state? What if they had stayed awake and had been in that observer mode? We can only imagine it would be quite possible that when Jesus was taken and even when he was crucified, that there would have been, because from a state of observance, there might have been that awareness that, this is all the divine plan and even though it's hard to behold hard to experience hard to watch we can see it in that divine context and we relax we surrender because what is it all anyway God's dream and so this this is a powerful technique for surrendering the ego To practice observance and to pray to be in tune and to be a channel for the divine will and if we can do that then in surrender we realize victory we have the strength to surrender and realize that inner victory and we have the power to in our daily lives live in attunement with the divine will in everything.